Are you? You see, I never wanted to be a missionary. They had two rules for God. Don't ever call me to do anything on a mission trip, and I'll never leave the States. He'll break your rules. Don't break his, but he'll break yours. When I was in Master's Commission, I ended up going on a mission trip to Romania. We got there, and the first day that we got there, the missionary associate that we were working with came up to me and he said, I don't know what it is about you. I don't even know why I'm supposed to say this. I've never met you, but I feel like God wants you to know that you're going to be back in Romania someday. I said, you're wrong. Not out loud, but I did mentally. Because I have my rules. He said, would you be willing to come back and work with me? Next year I'll be fully appointed. I'd like to ask you to come back and work with me. And I prayed about it for about a tenth of a second and said, no. I didn't pray. I'm just trying to make it sound better. He goes, okay, I understand that. That's all right. But would you at least be willing to go to a church that's not on your schedule? They found out that you're here and they just like one or two of you to go and share your heart with them and just minister the word. I said, yeah, I can do that. We get there very early and we're, we're talking with the pastor and we're working with him and, and just getting things ready and we're like an hour and a half early and we're eating cookies and tea and all this great stuff and we get done with the conversation. He's just asking who I am and a little bit about me and he goes, I don't know what it is about you. I've never claimed to be a prophet but I've never been wrong. If you've never been wrong, call yourself a prophet. We know who to stay away from. Joking. He says, and I feel like God wants you to know that you're going to be back in Romania someday. Talk to myself. Welcome to the first time you've been wrong. We went through the service. At the end of the service, he announces to his entire church that I'm going to be coming back to Romania. I stood up and politely waved and walked out, thinking, I'm never coming back. We went through the trip, and we worked with Teen Challenge. Everyone know what Teen Challenge is? Great organization. We worked with orphanages. I know you know what those are because you're working to help build one. The reason that there's so many orphanages in Romania is because during the the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu, a ruthless dictator in Romania, they outlawed all forms of birth controls, hiked up taxes so high that no one could take care of their children, and made a law that in some areas they had to have 10 children per family. Because of the high taxes, they couldn't take care of their family, they couldn't take care of their children, and they were forced to put them on the streets. To this day, in Romania, there are 30,000 orphans in a country the size of the state of Oregon. Ceausescu's gone now. He's at his eternal reward. Him and his wife both. This was in the 80s when they were gone, and, and, and the country has started to get better, and great organizations have gone in and started orphanages to help these street children, and and. and 
organizations such as Teen Challenge have helped them get off of drugs and many other things, and we worked with these ministries while we were on this trip. At the end of the trip, it was a great trip, and on our day off, our, our tour guide, who is named Cataline, what was that name? Just making sure you all heard me here. Cataline comes up to me in, in true Romanian fashion, and they, they, they kiss both cheeks, and they hug way longer than anyone wants to, and they're just, you know, they're inside your personal space way beyond any person here would ever want to be. And he leans in, and I don't know how, but he did, and um, he whispers into my ear, and he says, I don't know why I'm supposed to tell you this. But I want you to know that God wants you back in Romania someday. I thought, okay, God, you got my attention. But I was taught by my father, who's a very wise man, that you don't ever do anything based on what man says, regardless of how intelligent they are. They're not God. God will always confirm his call with Scripture. And God will never contradict Scripture. So I didn't say anything about this. I didn't, I didn't talk about it. I didn't announce it. Because what used to bother me is I'd have kids when my dad was a youth director that would come home and they'd stand in front of their church and, and they'd cry and they'd weep and they, they, they'd go through all of these emotional situations and say, God called me to do this or God called me to do that or they, God called me to do this and, and, and then they never do it. And I know I'm young and I might be a little crazy, but I, I, I tend to think if God tells you to do something, that you should actually then do it. Sorry, I might be a little nuts with that. So I didn't say anything. I just prayed. Two days later, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, I get woken up from a dead sleep, and I feel like I'm supposed to open my Bible. I don't know where to, and I, I walk my Bible over to my desk, and I drop it on, my, on its spine, and it falls open in Genesis 12.1, which reads, Abram, I want you to leave your land, your people, and your father's household. And go to a land that I will show you. I said, okay, God, I, I'm willing, but I'm just a mentally retarded midget who grew up in a town of 5,000 of factory workers and farmers, and I barely graduated high school, and, and there's got to be somebody better. Not me. Call somebody else. But I learned that day that God doesn't call the perfect. He calls the willing. Are you willing? Are you willing to do what God has called you to do? You see... I didn't know what God wanted me to do until all of a sudden it began to flood my mind that these 30,000 orphans at the age of 18 are forced to leave their orphanage. They have no home, no family, the world, their country, and their families have forgotten them. 
They go back into drug dealing, prostitution, and gangs just to try to survive. And if they're lucky enough, they survive long enough to be picked up by teen gangs. A ministry began to birth inside of me that that worked with these orphans, orphans the minute they leave the orphanages. Help them learn a trade, teach them what it is to be a mother and a father, care for them in, in every way that we possibly can, and just help them get back on their feet before they have to do all of this. I had no clue how. And as I sat there and thought about it and, and began to realize the excuses that I had of the fact that I'm just a town full of factory workers and farmers, I realized as I learned more about Romania that it's a country full of factory workers and farmers. God has you where he wants you to get you ready for what you're going to do. Not just to survive it. This is boot camp for what's coming next. You see, as I began to work through this and think through what we wanted to do and how to do it, we, we wrote out our mission statement a little bit about how we wanted to do these things and teach them a trade and show them that God loves them and, and help them find apartments. We went to the Michigan district, and because I'm a Michigan missionary, even though I grew up in Wisconsin, I pastored here, so I'm lost out of Michigan. And um, we went, we got approved by Michigan, and we told them what we wanted to do, and they said, that's great. I never heard of that before. Good luck. I got to Springfield, and we told them what we wanted to do, and we, we just poured out our heart for them. And they looked at us, and the head of all missions for the Assemblies of God looks at me, and he goes, that's awesome. We've never heard of anyone doing that. Good luck. Now I thought, okay, God. I have approval, I have everything I need, and I just don't know how this is all going to work, but I'm willing. We began to itinerate and tell people what was going on and share our heart with what God had for us. Money came in and people started to catch on to, to the vision, and then about, what would, I, what would it be now, six months? Six months ago on like a Tuesday at 7 o'clock, I get a phone call from a man with a very strong Romanian accent. Through the course of the conversation, he asked me a few questions and then says, Brent, this is Cataline. I'm the head of Teen Challenge in all of Romania. When I saw your name come across my desk, I saw what you wanted to do, and I wanted to call and let you know that a year ago, we bought facility just outside of the capital city and the side of a mountain. We've already built the buildings, we already have the land, and we're doing what you want to do. We just need the help. You see, God doesn't ask us to know the answer. He asks us to be willing. Because he'll do the rest. There was a quote I was at Christian Book Distributors or whatever it was, the bookstore thingy, and I don't read as much as my wife does, so we stopped for her, because that was nice. Take note, husbands. And um, 
I, I opened up this book, and it randomly fell open to a quote. I don't even know who said it, but I loved it. The quote is this. It is not what you believe that counts. It is what you believe and do that counts. It's time for the church to be people that do instead of just talk. There's a story in Scripture that I'm sure you've all heard from almost every missionary that's walked through your doors, but I'm going to paraphrase it today because I have ADD, which means I read different than you. It means I also have more fun than you. I get in trouble more often, but eh, it comes with territory. There's a story where Jesus calls his first disciples. In Luke 5, 1 through 11, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to tell you my Brent version. When I read, I, I, I read with pictures in my brain and things just kind of wander and that's why I don't catch the stuff I'm supposed to. I catch the fun stuff. And, and I, I'm reading this story as I'm getting ready to go into missions and, and it hits me as I'm going. It starts out with Jesus walking along the lake of Gennesaret and I want to I I preface this with something. Don't jump to the end. Too often we jump to the end and we don't catch the story. It says he's walking along the lake and and in all of his glory, he's, he's, he's just going for a walk. He's probably got his sandals in his, in his hand like I did at the beach a couple days ago. And he's just going for a stroll. His long white flowing gown is catching in the breeze. And it's blowing. And his, his hair is flowing with the wind. And his beard is perfectly trimmed. Let's just go with the pa- paintings, okay? I picture a little halo glowing over his head and He's just doing his thing. But the seagulls land behind him, and it says that all of a sudden, a crowd develops. They begin to ask him questions and just try to pick his brain a little bit. And as he's going through this crowd, he's, he's touching children, and he's answering questions, and he's caring for the lost, and he, he just lets them know how much he loves them. And it says that the crowd gets so large that he can no longer walk down the beach. Just picture that for a second. So he comes upon these men who it says are cleaning their nets. Let's paint a picture for a second. Who here likes to fish? Okay, cool. There's a few. Now, how many of you, as wives, I'm assuming, don't like it when your husband fishes? Okay, I guess you all don't mind because they're just out of the house. And um, uh, But when they come back, they all smell, right? I know I do. And like you can take seven baths and you still smell. You see, these fishermen stunk. They had seaweed and fish slime caked into their their cloak. As they're standing knee-deep in water, as the, the water soaks into it, and their beard has food crusted in it from the last three days, and they're, 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 it, they're wind-blown, and their skin is red, and they haven't brushed anything, and they look like Einstein. They're fishermen. They don't care what they look like. And Christ walks up to them and says, is it okay if I use your boat? Now, the part that's not in Scripture that I paraphrase is they kind of look at each other at this point and go, have you seen our boat? As this colony of flies that's so large it could carry the boat away is humming around it. As fish scales and slime are caked inside of it, it's a boat. 
He looks at them and he says, is it okay if I use your boat? He's like, I guess. So with one fisherman standing on either side of the boat, they pull it out a little ways, and Christ in all of his perfection sits down and teaches the people, it says, for as long as they will listen. He doesn't rush. And then he gets done teaching, and he does something very profound. He looks at these fishermen and says, let's go fishing. Let's go do what you do. I just want to be with you. They then go fishing, and they catch a large number of fish, and Christ hasn't walked on water yet, which means he's now knee-deep in fish. He smells really bad. But he's loving it. Because he's there. You see, so many people focus on the fishers and men part that they miss everything he had to do to get them there. You see, we call ourselves Christians, which doesn't mean follower of Christ. It means Christ-like. You're not following him. You're acting like him. Well, how did Christ live his life? With sinners. With those that smelled bad. Didn't dress right. Didn't act right. Didn't talk right. But he loved them anyway. And he didn't care if they smelled bad. Because he loved them. My question to you on this is are you willing to get in the boat of those that don't yet know him? Because it will smell like beer and cigarettes, and pornography, and abuse, and hurt, and pain, and struggle. They won't have pleated pants and nice shirts. They may have a Manson shirt on, or a Harley shirt, or whatever else, but, you know, Christ still died for them. Why are they not here? You see, missions doesn't start when you go overseas. It starts when you walk out that door. But are we too clean to get dirty? It's time to get dirty again. You see, we turn to the government to help the elderly and the young. We turn to a president to fix our problems. But if the church was doing its job, the government wouldn't need the help. Because Christ says that true religion, true religion is helping widows and orphans. Helping the down and out. Caring for those that no one else does. So why do we have to wait for the government to do it? You see, 
many people look at me and they say, well, it'd be easy if I knew what I was called to do. I'm going to take away all of your excuses today because that's what they are. You don't have a reason. Christ took all of your reasons when he died on a cross. And when we get to heaven someday, all we're going to have is excuses. And they're not going to hold any water. Because the God of the universe is going to look back and say, I did everything for you. What did you do for me? Well, you don't understand yet. Yeah, I do. What did you do for me? Well, but I had, I don't care. What did you sacrifice for me? Because I gave you everything. There's a verse in Scripture, Habakkuk 1.5, that says, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Think about that. God said that. I am going to do something unbelievable in your days. It's not a question. It's not a possibility. It's a promise. But there's a question that follows up. That question is this. Are you going to be part of it? Well, wait a second. I'm already part. I, I come to church. I know when to stand up and when to sit down and I clap my hands. Wrong. That just means you have a good view of what God is doing. It doesn't mean you're in the game. Now let me explain myself just a little bit. I played football in high school. Anyone play football? 100 years ago or yesterday, it doesn't matter. Football is a sport that I love. I can't wait. I'm going to Packers training camp. I, like, love the draft. I mean, everything about football, that's my sport. When I played it, my, my coach was, was ruthless, loving man off the, court, off the field, but once you put that helmet on, you were dead, like most football coaches are. And I played wide out. I was 180 pounds and 6'4 when I graduated high school, which means that when you got a hold of me, you could kill me. I played the slot position, which, for those of you that don't know, that's this position where you get killed. You run towards the linebacker, which is like the biggest guy on the defense, and he just rips your head off. That was my job. Remember that whole retarded part? Um, but I loved it. And my coach used to look at me, and he'd say, Levy, if that quarterback can avoid eight guys and get you the ball and it touches your hand, you better catch it. And if you can't, I'm putting somebody in who can because you're useless to me. Okay, I've got a job. Catch the ball. So there's this one time in a game where 
I grew up in a town of 5,000, pretty much nothing going on in town unless you were going to like go tip cows or something. So everyone came to the game. The whole town. It was awesome. The lights are on. The coach is yelling at you. The jerseys are clean. Helmets are a little scratched out from the game you won last week. And life's good. And we walk into the huddle and our quarterback, who has an arm that like is like a cannon, he had three full-ride scholarships he turned on to become a mechanic. Why? I don't know, but he did. He looks around the huddle, and he calls out the play, and I don't remember which one it was, and, and the play doesn't really register until you're running to your spot on what you're supposed to do. You just kind of say, break, and go. And I'm jogging out to my spot, and I realize, awesome. I'm running a five-yard in route, which is right where that guy is. And this is going to hurt. I knew it. I was going to die. So I run with all of the strength I have within me, which isn't a whole lot. And I, I run five yards out, and I cut really hard to the inside. And I'm running as hard as I can. And then our quarterback, in all of his wisdom, drops back and fires this ball so hard you can hear it coming. It hits your gloves, and it feels like the receiver's gloves are about ready to rip off your hands. And the next thing I know, boom! I'm looking out my ear hole. My shoulder pads are loose. My ear pads are five yards up the field. My mouth guard's out. But I hung on to the ball. Crowd goes crazy, everything else, but I'm walking to the wrong huddle. Friends come over, and they're picking everything up, and they're putting everything back together, and, and they walk me over to the sideline. You know, coach, in all of his wisdom, I am now, like, have a mild concussion, slaps me on the side of the head and says, good job. Thanks, coach. And I get done with the game. We win. It's awesome. It's fun, all those other things. And we get done, and I walk into the house, and I'm bruised up and skinned up, but I'm excited because it doesn't matter. And, and I get into the bathroom, my mom has the bathtub running, and she's got all the ace bandages out and the salve and everything else, and she's getting ready to put me back together. And I sit down on the toilet in my gym shorts, and I'm all excited because it was an awesome game, and I don't even realize that my eyes are crossed. And I, I mean, just it's great. And my mom looks at me like all mothers do, and she asks me the most infamous mom question. Why did you do this to yourself? Now, all of you that have played football know the answer to that question. Because we won. Mom, di didn't you see how, like, I, I went up in the back of the end zone and my, I caught the ball and my toes were the only thing in and, and, and we won the game and they, they carried me off the field and, and, and the crowd went crazy and it was awesome. It was nuts. It was, it was just, it was the coolest thing I've ever experienced. Didn't you see that part? But, but why? You see, the reason she asked why is because she was in the stands. And there's a major difference between watching and playing. Watching is comfortable. It's easy. You've got popcorn and soda and a padded chair if you bring your own. You've got blankets, and it's warm, and 
You have hot chocolate, but in the field you have blood and sweat and pain. You have anger, frustration. Does that sound familiar? You see, Christ doesn't ever describe Christianity as a walk in the park like most of us are on. He describes it as a war. And if we're at a war, my question is, when was the last time you got hit? Or hit back? You see, Christ gave me all of the tools I need. I have a helmet. I have a breastplate. I have a belt. I have shoes and a shield and a sword. But is it dusty? Is it leaning in the corner? Or is it sharp and ready for battle? Because your enemy's not taking a break. He's coming again and again and again and again. And if you're not ready, he'll cut your head off. You see, when I would sit and tell my mom it didn't matter anymore because I won, there's going to come a day when I die. I get to heaven. I walk into a, a big gold bathroom. God's got the tub running. He ace bandages it out. He's going to work on putting me all together again. He's going to say, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? And on that day, I want to look back and say, because we won. And it doesn't matter anymore. It's okay. And I didn't win for me. I won for Bjorn, who is a friend of mine who was a drunk in high school, but is now saved. I won for Joe and Sally and Tom. Are you willing today to win for the drunk guy that's at the bar already this morning? Are you willing to win for those that don't know him yet? Because that's the point. It's not about having a nice padded chair. Christianity is about doing what we've been called to do. What am I called to do? Christ was asked the question. What is the greatest commandment of them all? He was asked to give one, but he gave two. Do you know his full answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Do you do that today?
Do you love God with everything in you? Or just the comfortable parts? You see, I have people that, when they answer that question, will stop there. I'm supposed to love God. You know, me and God, we're friends. Here's me and God. We're just, we've got a red phone, and me and God, we're doing great. You can't love God any more than the person you're sitting next to. Any more than you love the person you're sitting next to, rather. You can't love God any more than you love the drunk on the bar stool. You can't love God any more than you love the person that you can't get along with in school or at your workplace. It's impossible to love God more than you love them. Because God loves them. God died for them. And it's time for the church to get to a point where we don't walk down the street and see people walking past. We walk down the street and see people that are going to eternally be in heaven or hell. And if we don't say something, it's our fault. You see, so many times people say there's no tears in heaven. But I believe there will be. At least right when we get there. And we find out who's not. Because then we would be willing to do everything to change the fact that they're not. Because it says that God will wipe away the tears. I know I'm going to cry when I get there. I know I am. Because I know people that I didn't tell. But I never want it to happen again. You see, when I was in high school, you see, obedience doesn't happen when you get older, kids. Obedience happens now. Obedience doesn't happen when your kids get older, parents. It happens now. So let them. Even if your faith is the one that needs to be stretched. Did you catch that? One of the biggest problems I had as a youth pastor was that I'd get the kids motivated to do something and go on a mission trip and care for the lost and give their money and I'd have parents that would say, well, I don't know if it's safe over there. Well, wait a second. Where's your faith that God will take care of your child? Because last time I checked, a 13-year-old girl gave birth to my Savior. If God can trust a 13-year-old with that, can't you trust yours? I'm sorry, but it's the truth. It's time for us to be people that live by faith and not by works, not by strength, not by power. When I was in high school, I started a Bible club with a friend of mine. I'm going to paraphrase this very quickly for the sake of time. 
didn't think I could do it, didn't know how. I was a freshman in high school. I was 6'4 and 160 pounds. Began to cry the night that God called me to do it. Told my dad what was going on and said, Dad, I feel like I'm supposed to start a Bible club, but I'm just a freshman. I've never taken a speech class. I'm a dork. I get picked on all the time. I just, I just want to survive high school. I don't want to open my mouth. He looked at me and said, Brent, if God has called you, you need to obey. So I called a friend of mine and had him help me with it. We got permission from the principal to start a Bible club. Public high school, by the way, not a Christian one. Nothing against the two, but I just want you to understand. Walked into the principal's office with my friend and, and, and walked up to the principal and said, would it be okay if we started a Bible club? He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Boom, just like that. Okay, thought I was going to have to fight that a little bit more, but guess not. I said, can I have a room? He said, yeah, how about the auditorium? Okay, guess we'll use a corner. It's literally what I thought. I said, can I have a time? He goes, yeah, there's a 15 to 20 minute break between third and fourth period. How about you take that? Okay, they don't have to come early. They don't have to stay late. They're already there. So my friend put up flyers on every other locker in the school and did an announcement for two weeks straight every day. We get to the day before the event, and he looks at me and he says, Brent, I want you to tell your testimony of how God healed you. Would you be willing to tell your testimony at your school? And I thought, dude, that's why I asked you to help. I am not supposed to be the one speaking. He said, no, I, I think you need to. The day of the event comes, and I'm standing behind the curtain in the auditorium, and, and I'm hearing bustling around, and there's noise and whatever, but I don't really know what's going on. And all of a sudden, my friend walks out from behind the curtain after uh, about three songs of worship in my public high school. I want to keep reiterating that. I was just scared we were even doing it. He gets done with worship, and he says, I want to introduce to you somebody that most of you have not met yet. He is a freshman, but doesn't look like one. I thought, thank you. Thanks for blowing that cover. Would you please put your hands together for Brent Levy? And as I walked out from behind that curtain, I realized that in the 300-seat auditorium, there wasn't a seat left. And the teachers were lined shoulder to shoulder along the back wall. I walked forward and was so nervous I couldn't even read my notes. And I actually said it into the microphone. I can't even read my notes. I began to cry uncontrollably. Great first impression in high school, in case you're wondering. And I had great eye contact with the girl in the front row, who was not my wife, but she was there, and I knew her, so it worked. And I told my testimony in five minutes just like this and never looked up. Never change my tone from this right here the entire time. But at the end of it, I said God did not die on a cross so that we could be healed and fix our problems. He died so that you don't have to go to hell. And if you would like to stand up right now and accept the God that I know, do it.
30 kids stood up that day. Not because of who I am or because of who I was, but because I was willing to go. Are you willing to go? Because if you're not, it's time for us to look and see the ramifications of if we don't instead of the struggle when we do. It's time for us to be a church that understands what it means. The final thing I want to share with you today is this. There's a story in Habakkuk, or not Habakkuk, Nehemiah. Sorry, I'm getting everything mixed up. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, a cupbearer. He's a nobody. He's worse than the dirt underneath the worm. And he's a glorified test rat is really what he is. His job is to taste the food and drink the wine before the king does because if Nehemiah dies, nobody cares. That's who he is. And his brothers show up one day, and he asks them a very normal question. How are things back home? Anyone ever ask that question of your brothers and sisters? Simple. How are things going? And they give him this long answer of how bad it is. Well, the gates are burned down, the citadels are destroyed, the walls are in ruins, and we're a disgrace to all the countries around us. And then when you read the story, it's like they go got pizza and after that. It's like just done, boom. All right, cool, thanks for letting me know that everything's horrible. Let's go get pizza. I mean, read it. You'll see. But it says that Nehemiah, after that conversation, cannot get it off his mind. He begins to weep and mourn and pray for his country. He doesn't even have the strength to ask the king for help because he's afraid that if he approaches the king, he'll be killed because if the king does not point his scepter to you and does not accept who you are, then you talk to him and you die. So he doesn't even have the strength to talk until one day, many days later, the king looks at Nehemiah and he says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? Why are you in mourning? Why are you not as happy as I've seen you before? This is his chance. He says, oh, great king, my country where my fathers are buried is, is in ruins. It's destroyed. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's a disgrace. I'm in mourning because my homeland is ruined. And the king looks at him and says something very profound. He asks him, Nehemiah, when are you going and when will you return? You see, the king in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty could have sent armies could have sent chariots and gold and everything else to take back the land, but he doesn't. He sends one man with a burden. You see, in America today, as I travel around, I see churches all the time that say, God, send somebody. God, our country's in ruins. God, our country's a disgrace to everyone else. God, why won't you send somebody to reach our country, to change our country? Why will your spirit not flood through our country and fix everything? And I believe that God is standing at his throne today, looking down at his church, pointing back at us and saying, when are you going? 
And when will you return? Because I will not send somebody where there already is a missionary. You see, you're already here. Do your job. Don't ask for somebody else to bail you out. You want your community to change? Then go to your neighbor's house for a change. Buy a pie and a bucket of ice cream and walk the vast chasm of your yard and actually be nice. It might change things. It's time for us to love and care enough to actually do something. The only difference between you and me is I get to love and care in another country. But do me a favor. When my kids return, I want America to be changed. So promise me that you won't drop the ball. Because there's just as many people here if you're willing to find them. Can I pray with you today? Lord, I pray for this church today. I pray, Lord God, that this church will be a church that does not just send missionaries, but it becomes a church of missionaries. Lord, I pray for the Assemblies of God as a whole, that we will not just buy our way out of going. Say, well, I sent money and they're going, so I'll stay. No. That our denomination will be a denomination that sends those overseas, but also goes to our neighbors. Lord, I pray for every member of this church, Lord God, that as they lay their head down tonight, that they will have the faces and the names of those that they know that are not saved etched into their mind for all of eternity. That there will be a passion that burns within them that they cannot contain to just tell them of the love that you have for them. Lord, I pray for the leadership and the pastors in this church, Lord God, that they would continually be ready because your spirit is about to fall. Lord, I pray that those that were within this room will be ready to step up and understand that there's going to be work as these chairs are filled. There's going to be prayer meetings. There's going to be counseling sessions. There's going to be crying and weeping and, and, and pain. But Lord, in the end, it will be joy. I pray, Lord God, that this church would outgrow this building that it would be a church where your spirit resides and that there will be testimonies of people that will say, I just drove past and don't know what made me come here. I thank you for every person that is in this room and those that go to this church that aren't. Because they are going to change this region. As they look at their city and watch, and are utterly amazed because you are going to do something in their day. Not the next generation and not the last, but today.
And I thank you, God, that your spirit is here. And as I close today, please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you want to come forward today and recommit your life and say, God, I'm done making excuses. I'm done. I'm done faking it. I'm done being a pew sitter. I'm ready to get in the game. If that's you today, just come forward. We're not going to embarrass you. We just want to pray with you. And let you know that you're not alone. We're all behind. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is God speaking to us in this moment? Personally, I want to be sensitive to that. And uh, I just believe that God this moment wants us to be able to respond to the Holy Spirit and, uh, and how He's touching our hearts and our lives and maybe to settle some things with the Lord in this moment. I don't think any of us could uh, say that we're, you know, when those Holy Spirit promptings come, that we're 100% following through. And, uh, I know I'm, I'm not. There's times I've missed those promptings to share, to go, to do. And I just believe God wants us to be hitting a little, a little more than we're missing. How many would agree for his kingdom? We're going to do two things kind of at once here. We're going to receive an offering. And, uh, and ushers, I'm going to ask that you would just bring the plates and just put them up here um, in the front. Um, you can go ahead and just bring them and, and just leave them right here. And we are going to receive an offering for our tithes and, uh, and for our offerings. And if you want, uh, I'm going to encourage you to, uh, to give also to Brent and Renee. Um, you can just designate on, a, on an envelope, you know, the portion that you would like to go to them. And we're going to receive an offering uh, and come and bring it. But at the same time, I'm going to challenge you to spend a moment here in the altars or in the first few rows asking God to help you be more sensitive to what Brent's talking about this morning and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to our lives in this moment. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. 
Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to bless a missionary. What a privilege. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to the hearts of people right now, Lord, to, to be generous, to be sacrificial in their giving. Lord, thank you for providing for the needs of this body. Lord, through the faithfulness of your people. And Lord, we, we appreciate that. And Lord, even more important, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Thank you for speaking through Brent this morning and challenging us with the question, will we go? Will we be obedient? And Father, I pray that our answer will be yes. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you feel led, um, just come. We can drop our offering in the plates as we receive the offering for Brent and for the tithes and offering all, all together. At the same time, I'd encourage you and your family just to spend a few moments with the Lord uh, before you uh, head on off to a busy Sunday afternoon. If you want special prayer, just you know, kind of find yourself right here in the front, and uh, we'll anoint you with oil, pray for you, and, uh, and we'd love to do that. But let's just turn this place into a house of prayer. Amen? Amen. Let's do that. Let's stand together, and, and let's move. Because